G'day humans, welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations, the safe space for dangerous ideas where I, your humble host, your humble warrior princess, Josh Sepps, uh, wander through the, uh, the, the, what is it, a forest or maybe a, a minefield and, uh, and slay dragons of intellect. Gee, that's, a, that's an awful analogy, isn't it? I'm not doing very well. Let's start again. <clears throat> G'day, humans. Welcome to... No, I'm not going to do the whole thing over again. That's all right. Um, anyway, welcome to the show. <clears throat> oh, a little bit hoarse today. My, oh, my. I've been presenting the breakfast show on uh, ABC Radio Sydney for a few weeks. Uh, those 3.30 starts, I'll tell you what, do you wake up at 3.30? Have you ever woken up at 3.30? Of course you haven't, you lazy slob. You haven't gotten up before 8 a.m. any day of your life, have you? Uh, no, let's cancel that. Start again. <clears throat> G'day, humans. No, I'm not going to start again. Either. Uh... Diana E. Anderson is on the show today. And if you're wondering, is Josh drunk or something? What's with this intro? No. Don't drink anymore. Diana E. Anderson is a writer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. They they are the author of, and yes, they are the author of books, uh, including Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, and Problematic, How Toxic Call-Out Culture is Destroying Feminism. But their latest book, it's called In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. You don't care about all of these subtitles of the books, do you? Why do I have to say the subtitles? Why well, can't I just say, Diana E. Anderson has written three books. They're called Damaged Goods, Problematic, and In Transit. And if you want any of them, you know how to get books. Or do you need me to say that they're available where all good books are sold? They're all available at all good bookstores. Or you can go to www.amazon. Uh, dot com a m a z or z o n for nancy dot com diana is <clears throat> very interesting i wondered whether or not to have her on the show them on the show god start this again <clears throat> g'day humans welcome to un- no i'm not gonna start it again uh Apologies, uh, Diana, for misgendering you. Um, Diana has uh, first came across my uh, radar as a, a Twitter, um, shall I say, troublemaker? I say that in a non-pejorative way, but a Twitter troublemaker. Um, they prompted a, an article by uh, Jesse Single, the writer who had written a big Atlantic piece about uh, desisters, about people who had gone some way down the path of transitioning to uh, to being transgender and had then pulled back. Um, and Jesse's piece was controversial. Jesse was perhaps the first journalist to really feel a full blowback that comes anytime you touch transgender issues in anything but the most fawning and conformist way uh, these days. Uh, Jesse was the canary in the coal mine. And in 2021, in March, he had to write an entire long, long blog in response to a single Twitter thread by Diana Anderson. Uh, his article is, and this only came to my attention subsequently, his article is entitled, Check Out How Much Effort It Takes to Respond to a Single Lie-Stuffed Tweet Storm Distorting My Work on Youth Gender Dysphoria, and then subtitle, a response to Diana E. Anderson. So needless to say, the two of them aren't friends, but it, I'm not the type of person who says, well, I'm not going to platform people who have, you know, once sent a tweet storm that I might find questionable. The whole point is to talk to them and figure out what they think about the world. Um, and Diana is a really interesting character. 
um, as you'll hear, that grew up evangelical and are now an extremely, I was going to say aggressive, but that may sound pejorative, vocal defender of the gender-critical trans movement in America. Um, The new book, In Transit, is an exploration of non-binary identity. And uh, look, I don't drag Diana over the coals here. I don't raise the Jesse Single incident. We do talk about it, and we do talk about the difficulty of talking about this subject in the media. Um, But I was more interested in understanding Diana's worldview than in pillorying them in public. Please uh, do enjoy this conversation with uh, the quite delightful and very interesting Diana E. fully on the bandwagon of all the terminology um you're non-binary are you also Mm -hmm. trans yes i consider myself non-binary and trans and i do consider those somewhat distinct but overlapping categories so what's trans because i think most people will be familiar Mm -hmm. with a transgender person who feels that they were born into the wrong body or that they were assigned the wrong gender at birth mm-hmm. and exhibits that, that kind of uh, resistance from a very early age. And, you know, uh, and so then they transition uh, to a different sex. But if, but you're, that's not you. Right. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of cis people in particular, take a very, uh, what's called a sort of trans medicalist view, where like if you have undergone these medical transitions, this uh, journey of healthcare, then you are trans. That is a major part of being trans. And um, my argument, both in my book and just in my life, is that you don't have to undergo any parts of medical transition in order to consider yourself trans or non-binary. Those are categories of identity and of political utility, not necessarily um like a diagnosis that you meet and check and check right. off on a box. And um, when you say cis people, that just means people who are not trans. Right. Yeah. Uh, so what, what is it for you then? And how did it emerge in your life? Uh, it's been a long journey to realizing that I am non-binary. I grew up in an evangelical environment, evangelical Christian Um, which is very rigid um, when it comes to the roles that gender plays. Um, I was, my, my parents didn't follow a lot of gender roles, but there were points when it was very much assumed that because I was assigned female at birth um, and perceived to be a girl, they, that I would follow certain paths and certain ideas in life. Um, And it always felt to me like I was an outsider looking in, trying to figure out what the rules are to what it means to be, you know, a girl or a woman or whatever. And uh, when I hit about, I'm in my mid thirties now. And so when I hit about 30, I was like, does, is this even working anymore? Like, I don't know what a woman is anymore. I don't know what that means for me. I can't come up with a definition that satisfies how I feel about myself. Uh, So I started exploring other identities and um, realized that non-binary was the one that fit the best. Um, 
and decided to start pursuing, in conjunction with that, a medical uh, transition as well. A medical transition. Well, that's interesting because I think mm-hmm. I think of non-binary as being uh, a non-physical uh, aspect, as being something almost spiritual, as being something that that where you simply don't feel like you inhabit either gender. But how does that play out physically for you? Yeah, that is something that um, a lot of non-binary people uh, believe and think about themselves, where like gender is just a thing that they play with throughout the day. It's not something that they necessarily feel the need to make permanent changes to their bodies, Uh, but everyone is different. Um, And for me, needing to go and get top surgery, which is a double mastectomy uh, to create a masculinizing appearance, uh, was necessary to my identity because I wanted to deliberately present as something that didn't automatically get gendered as woman. Why? Uh, because I'm not one and I don't like uh, being called ma'am. I don't like being assumed that I am female. Um, but aren't, like, aren't, you co- aren't you courting the reverse in, in a sense that you're, you're courting being referred to as sir and being pigeonholed as a, as a man and presumably that doesn't fit the gender non-binary in any better? Yeah, it's, well, for me, it's more that people will second guess themselves and like that calls, att- calls attention to the artificialness of this entire structure of gender that we have. Um, Mm. It is, for me, okay, the other day I was in the pet store, and I ran into this little Scottish terrier, and I leaned down to uh, pet uh, the dog, and her owner went, oh, be careful, she's not familiar with men. Um, And I was like, oh, well, cool. And so I spoke, (laughs) and then she heard my voice and was like, wait. And like that wait moment is kind of what I like Mm. (laughs) of that people going, huh, I can't place this person. (laughs) It's so funny, Diana. I hate those moments. Like I remember being, (laughs) I remember, I remember when I was a kid and, you know, I would answer the phone, you know, when you're like 12, you start to think that it's really grown up and cool to answer your, answer your parents' phone. Uh, when we had landlines. Uh, so maybe when I was like eight or nine or 10 and every time I would pick up, they would say, you know, the, the friend would just start saying, oh, Marianne, I'm so glad that I got you thinking that it was my mum because my voice hadn't <laughs> broken yet. And then there, there would come this this awkward moment where I'm like, oh, no, actually it's Josh, uh, Marianne's son. Do you want to talk to mum? And I had to start saying, you know, answering the yeah. phone by saying, hi, this is Josh, uh, so that people didn't do that. And I, and for me that was just cringe, cringy and embarrassing and unpleasant, obviously unpleasant and awkward for that person and therefore unpleasant yeah. and awkward for me on their behalf. I didn't want to make anyone uncomfortable. It seems like you're going out of your way to, to, to do that. <laughs> I don't. I don't like that. And that's part of the tension of my identity is that I don't like making people uncomfortable, but I do sort of get a bit of gender euphoria out of people not being able to tell. Um, And that it's, it's kind of fun. Um, And I would say, I would go so far as to say like those moments when cis people experience them, when they can't, when somebody mistakes their gender for something, those are elements of gender dysphoria. You are experiencing discomfort at somebody not reading you properly. 
Mm. Um, and that is something that I think there's a lot, a lot says people could learn from thinking about those moments and leaning into them and thinking like, okay, why am I uncomfortable here? What is that feeling? And oh boy, trans people go through that all the time. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a little bit like, I mean, I'm trying to think of analogies. It's not that dissimilar from something that happens to me almost every single day of the year, which is someone assuming that when I say spouse, if I don't actually say husband, mm -hmm. that they that they assume that it's a wife. So like I was just chatting the day before yesterday in an online chat with an airline because I had to change a reservation, one of those little chatbot things, but there's an actual human on the other side, probably in the Philippines or some such place. And they, and I said I needed, to, it was going to be ticketed on for my spouse because I wanted mm -hmm. to keep it gender neutral because I didn't want to get into the conversation. And they responded by saying, what's your wife's name? Because they could yep. see from my profile that I was a man. And it kept going back and forth and back and forth until, I, and they kept saying wife. And I kept saying, it's husband. I had to say like three times. And then I said, men can marry men, you know, and there was a long pause <laughs> and then came back this huge, long, uh, like groveling paragraph, which I felt bad for the person for oh. having to even say, you know, yes, that's yeah. absolutely true. I didn't mean any offense that you're quite right. Men can marry men and there's nothing wrong with that. And I certainly don't feel there's anything wrong with that. And I thought, oh, God, they probably think that this huge mega corporation airline is going to fire them for some human rights mm -hmm. abuse if they, you know, if I, if I were to dob them in and show evidence of the chat. So that was fine. But that's an, uh, just another example where, I think people who are who are gay or lesbian or queer in some way have a common experience, and I suppose this this may happen with people, you know, of non-discriminate ethnic background as well. And mm -hmm. you know, I'll sometimes be mistaken for this or mistaken for that. Or if you're a black person in France, you you might get mistaken for being of Arab descent from one of the North African colonies or whatever it might be. These constant iterations of kind of correction when someone is misdiagnosing the the tribe that you belong to or how you're you're living your life most people shy away from it most people want to minimize those those interactions i don't know whether to applaud you or condemn you for courting them <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a tension in which i think i've deliberately chosen to live um and it sort of forces forces those um not to be too on the nose uh uncomfortable conversations um, <laughs> about it <laughs> And so are you, so you're saying you've had, and tell me if I'm getting too private here, but you've had top surgery. You don't want to go any further. I have not. I have contemplated going on like low dose testosterone and stuff. I'm happy to talk about any parts of my medical transition okay, um, cool. and stuff, but uh, I haven't pursued that yet. Um, and it's one of those things where like, I don't know if I will. I don't know if I'm at a point where I want to put my body through that sort of thing. So I got the big main thing done and that's fine. Well, so. I mean, in, so, in some ways you would, you'd undermine the subversiveness of your gender non-binary status if you went further and became, uh, and you were able to pass as male. Right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I want to maintain some of that bit of feminineness and that bit of masculinity that I, that I have, uh, with my presentation. So it's so interesting, Diana, because so, so many other trans people who I know who are conventional binary trans people, mm -hmm. let's say, who aren't playing in the, in the sort of gender non-binary space, it's very important to them to be able to pass. You know, this is, this is almost a hierarchy within the trans community of like, you know, yes. oh, you know, she's, she's so beautiful. She's such a beautiful trans woman. I mean, you'd never even know. You couldn't even tell. Mm -hmm. That's like a, it's almost a status thing. Well, you know, to have a straight guy say, wow, she's, she's beautiful. 
and then for someone to go like actually bro she's a dude <laughs> you know mm -hmm. uh and in your case that's not an objective at all right and i am glad that i live in a space and in a city and uh and an area where that sort of thing is possible uh, because it is very much like I live in an area where my identity is a protected status. I can't be descriptive. We have laws on the book here in Minnesota uh, that protect gender identity as a protected class, which is not the case for all states in the U.S. And so I have a community and environment where it's safer for me to do that. Uh, whereas I think especially for trans women, it's not always been safe uh, to do that because trans women are seen as much more, they're much um, higher, uh, they're much more visible. Sorry, there's the word. Uh, they're much mm. more visible in the transgender movement than non-binary people like myself, simply because of the forces of what's called trans misogyny, where it is a particular form of misogyny aimed at trans women because they are trans, uh, because it's seen as this particularly transgressive thing uh, to be a person who is assigned male at birth who is now a woman. Mm, yes. There's also almost some kind of sense that like you're betraying the male team or you're trying to have one over yes. on us or like you're trying to trick us. You know, you're mm -hmm. trying to, there's a, there's a, a fear of being seduced. You think of all of the, cultural mm -hmm. things from what was that English film where the IRA guy was turned out to be a, a trans woman. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. The I listeners don't. will tell me the listeners will tell me it was like, yes, yeah. it's probably a little before your time and not yeah. in the right country, but none. none I do the know there's like the, the movie, the crying game, the, the crying twist. game. That was it. That was it. That the was it. Okay. Game. Yes. That's the film. Yeah. That is. Yeah. Well, you know, time, the but, yeah, the final, the final twist is that, oh my goodness, he's actually been falling in love with, uh, with a trans mm -hmm. woman. Um, and, and so I wonder if there's something sort of pathological in the way that men think that straight men think about themselves as being like the victims, the victims when they're in a mm -hmm. violent encounter with a trans woman. Oh yeah. But I, you know, she, she was trying to seduce me. Yeah, there is, in most of the states in the US, you can actually use that as a defense. It's called the trans panic defense. It's similar to the gay panic defense, uh, where straight men could assault or kill gay men because, oh, they were hitting on me and that threw me into a panic. Um, and there's a similar defense for trans panic, where like, oh, I was on a date with this person, I discovered that they were trans and I'm not responsible for my actions from that point on. Amazing. Uh, and we, we're working on banning it in Minnesota um, and stuff, even though it's still legal here. And so that's one of the ways that it's built into the system that it's okay for straight men, very often straight white men, to uh, have this overly violent reaction to something they see as transgressive, uh, and it's a-okay by the state. And wait, does that mean that in that in those states you're essentially required to divulge your trans status when you're on a date with somebody in case they fly into a rage when they find out? It, it's a thing where, like, if you do get murdered, they could use that defense at the, at the trial for your murder, if it even goes to trial. Um, and that would mean that you and your loved ones would not see justice uh, for it. So you're not required to disclose, but... 
it could come right. up in the trial if there is an eventual one, which is very frustrating. What are the gender characteristics, Diana, that you were talking about earlier? You said that like you didn't necessarily feel like the like you aligned like your behavior and your internal kind of self monologue aligned with gender characteristics of being a girl. What does that mean? It's it's really hard to describe because part of it is trying to make this sort of invisible internal experience. Uh, legible and intelligible for other people, uh, which is always going to end up using proxies for that. So like, I was a major tomboy growing up, I uh, really loved like climbing trees, I didn't care, like if it cut my dress or like stained my shoes or whatever. Um, I wanted to learn how to do uh what we might categorize as boyish things. I remember being really jealous of my brother getting to uh, be the one who mows the lawn. Um, whereas I didn't. <laughs> he can I, have it I, as far as I'm concerned. I yeah. hate mowing the lawn. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those where I look back as an adult and being like, why was I so jealous of that? <laughs> That's right. Um, and so, cause my job was dusting the dining room um, every week and making sure that like things were nice and shiny and so right. I felt this like intense gender divide in that. Um, and then as I got older, I tried out all these different ways of being a woman. I was pretty feminine for a while, wore a lot of dresses, wore makeup and painted my nails and did those stereotypical feminine things. And then I tried to move away from that and lean into being a butch. And I discovered like as I was um exploring my identity as like a butch lesbian as a butch queer that like I was so much happier when people couldn't tell <laughs> what gender I was mm. and that was part of the whole thing of like oh maybe I don't have to be part of that woman group at all maybe that's not within my womanhood uh or within my uh gender at all that's interesting. I mean, what's interesting here is that so many of these things that you're talking about are culturally constructed mm -hmm. in the first place anyway, isn't it? I mean, you know, maybe there's some innate masculine drive to climb trees and, I don't know, <laughs> fix tools or something. You know, maybe there's some biological component to, to having a propensity to, I don't know, taking widgets apart and putting them back together rather than negotiating or mediating uh, conversations uh, with other people, which may be a... A, a more feminine trait, or maybe that's also so constructed as well. But certainly, things like painting your nails, or you know, wearing dresses, or liking pink, these things are not innate. Yeah, the experience that you're talking about seems to be one that's very innate. That's almost impossible for you to articulate because it's just like you knew that you didn't fit these stereotypes. Yet the stereotypes are constructed. So, is it innate or is it constructed? It is. I look at gender as a language as a way of communicating our inward selves to the world um, in whatever form that takes, uh, in whatever way that fits within how our culture has decided to construct gender. Um, and that leans a bit on what uh, Judith Butler posits as gender as performance. Um, but it is also this innate feeling where we know, like, okay, these are the categories, where do we fit within them? Uh, and so, so for, for a lot of trans people, it's not a matter of like, 
oh, well, I was um, playing with uh, boys' toys when I was six, or I was playing with uh, Barbies and and, uh, doing their hair. Um, It's a matter of those ideas are proxies for how we talk about our internal experiences, really, because um, we can't actually articulate the feeling of ultimately dysphoria between what the world tells us we should be and what we actually are. Um, and that's, that's really how we end up with this discussion about like, well, trans people are just reinforcing stereotypes. And it's like, no, we're just using stereotypes as this sort of proxy for understanding ourselves within the gender system and understanding or how we acted out our gender in those ways when we were younger. Not everyone will be familiar with that criticism that you just passingly mentioned, uh, oh, transgender people are just reinforcing stereotypes. So uh, let, let's just linger on that for a moment. There's a, a criticism that some feminists will make, especially feminists, but others as well, but especially feminists will make of of the kind of performativity of transgender women, so people who are assigned male at birth and some some cohort of that population will get a huge uh, kick out of very elaborate displays, very almost camp or almost drag queeny displays of their own femininity. And so the idea that all of a sudden, oh, I, you know, I never felt more like myself, uh, says the young person who has previously been coded as male but is now coded mm-hmm. as female, uh, when I put on pearls and I put on a ball gown and mm-hmm. I put on high heels and I did my hair and I did my lipstick and, you know, a certain cohort of, I guess, second wave feminists from the Camille mm-hmm. Paglia and maybe Jermaine Greer book will say, hang on a second, feminism and femininity and womanhood was never about pearls and high heels and doing your hair and putting on lipstick. That's exactly what we were fighting against. And now you people who were assigned male at birth, who've grown up with all of the benefits of a sexist patriarchal society, who've had none of the disadvantages of growing up as girls, proclaim you know, yourselves to be relishing your femininity by putting on all of these trappings of a very old-fashioned or stereotypical idea about womanhood without having to have done any of the hard yards of growing up as a girl in a sexist society. What's your response to that? Yeah, there are a number of different things within that uh, that are worth addressing. The first is that, like, not every trans woman is femme. Um, i would argue that femme exists as a separate category. Uh, and femme is a particularly uh, queer term for like a woman who presents feminism, who is a queer woman, that sort of thing. Um, Cause I know butch trans women uh, who are not into makeup, not into that quote unquote girly stuff, uh, but still are women. Um, and it's it of course, but I, just, I don't think anyone yeah. is. Ru- I don't think anyone is saying yeah. that th- this argument proves that there's no such thing as trans women. I think they're just saying oh, that there's yeah. something unseemly about that particular quarter of the trans community. Yeah, and I would, if if that's the way that they're taking, because usually the way that I see the argument is that they are saying that well, trans women are just reinforcing stereotypes, therefore they are not valid women. Um, 
happens on uh, that. I wonder if that's be... just a reading in from like being too online and having too many arguments on Twitter. <laughs> I, like, I don't see that. I don't see that, but I don't doubt that you do from people screeching yeah, at you on I, Twitter all the time. But I, the, yeah, the, the, I have know, had people argue that uh, to me. Let's follow, so the, that let's is... follow the, the principle, yep. Diana, that, that we do yep. our best arguing when we're when we're <laughs> arguing against the the most uh, the most defensible of our opponents' positions rather than the weakest. So let's immediately. Yeah, I understand that, but I think there's there's more to be played with there. But um, but uh, the idea of like rejecting a trans woman's womanness because she says that you know putting on a skirt makes me feel like my my femininity is there, like make makes me feel like a woman feels like you're rejecting also a cis woman's uh femininity when she like enjoys wearing skirts enjoys uh doing well, yeah those i mean sort to, of to some extent i think these, yeah. these feminists would yeah i think these feminists would say that those people are living and in i would say that's false bad about <laughs> about you know that they're that they're subjects of a patriarchy that, that they're not aware of and i would i would say that's that's failing to embrace all the different forms of womanhood. And I would say that that is also a pretty white view to take because there are so many different ways of womanhood that are not those sort of stereotypical things that are still within uh, minority ethnic cultures that are not reflected in those stereotypes. And there's, it's, it seems very odd to think that you have the power to disallow somebody from the membership of the category woman based on how they choose to present themselves to the world or what gives them happiness. That seems very... Well, I think, we, as I said, we can place. rule out the we can rule out any claim that seeks to draw the conclusion that you should disallow people from being trans women or from enjoying the category of womanhood simply because they like, they have a particularly traditional or maybe old-fashioned or maybe unfeminist vision of what, what, how they want to present themselves. But that doesn't necessarily rule out... I mean, and on the, that doesn't necessarily rule out the concern that some feminists might have about the perpetuation of a certain cliché of femininity being peddled uh, by trans women and cis women alike. And, I mean, on the whiteness of it, that's a valid criticism, but there are all kinds of ethnic examples of people, and I use ethnic in quotation marks there, examples mm. of, you know, male-imposed forms of gender presentation for women that we would freely regard as being awful. Um, I don't know whether you would, but the burqa or Chinese foot binding mm. or any other traditional kind of sexist imposition on women, and those women may be living under what I would argue is a false consciousness of thinking that this is liberating, but you don't have a choice not to think it's liberating. And if you want to be critical of Western white culture, then maybe bikinis and uh, Brazilian waxes and, you know, Kardashian bums and duck lips and all that are an example of women trying to find a vision of femininity that is grotesquely malformed to try to appease and please the male gaze. And so all of that can be bundled up into the same criticism that some of these feminists might have of the way that a certain cohort of trans women take an off-the-shelf idea of, I don't know, how to present as females and reinforce all kinds of patriarchal stereotypes. Yeah, I want to talk specifically about the example of the hijab. Um, 
I here in Minneapolis, I am represented in our in the United States Congress by Ilhan Omar, who voluntarily wears the hijab. Uh, no one would say that some man is forcing her to wear it. Um, no one would say that she is engaged in some sort of patriarchal display by choosing to wear it. For her, it is a part of her religious devotion and part of her bodily autonomy to choose to wear the hijab. I also, when I um, was in my women's studies program at Oxford University, I had a classmate who would wear the hijab in class and come dressed up modestly because she felt that that was showing deference to the classroom and to the um, academic seriousness of the topics at hand. And that was her choice. And she wouldn't wear it out in the city. Um, mm. That was just to, that Just she... to clarify, before we go yeah. down a rabbit hole, I did say mm -hmm. the burqa, not the hijab, where mm. you're just looking out of a, a, little, a little slit. Right. And I'll take your point that, mm -hmm. I mean, I have friends who wear the hijab. We have a huge Muslim population here in Australia as yeah. well. Um, the fact that people who enjoy the freedoms of Western liberal democracies can choose to wear the hijab or not wear the hijab only mm -hmm. highlights for me the fact that most people who wear the hijab globally don't have that choice because they don't live in Western democracies. They live in theocracies. Uh, so it's and great that Ilhan Omar has that choice. But if she yeah. was in Iran, she wouldn't. Yeah, and I think ultimately the feminist position there is to support the bodily autonomy of choice. Yes, that's right. But they, but many, so, you know, many ex-Muslim feminists mm -hmm. regard it as being a symbol of a lack of choice because in yeah. the vast, vast majority of cases where it's worn, the woman doesn't have a choice. Yeah, I would, I would compare that to um, my own upbringing in evangelical culture where we have this thing called modesty culture where... Um, I did not wear anything that was not a crew neck until I was in my 20s, uh, because mm. showing any skin, showing any of the, um, like any of the shape of a female body was considered offensive. And that was absolutely a patriarchal thing. But so for me, putting on a bikini for the first time, uh, after coming out of that culture, and this was before I realized I was non-binary, uh, was this sort of liberating thing um, to be able to be immodest by their standards. Um, and so I mm. totally understand how like that sort of thing, like for me in the particular culture I grew up in, like seeing women with ankle length jean skirts, because that is the sort of modest thing of fundamentalist American Christians. Um, does make me go, ooh, that is, you know, that is a symbol of patriarchy in my mind. But I also don't want to decide for those women what is liberating to No, them. of course not. Yes. yes and I think right. that, circling it back um, to the idea of trans women saying, hey, this makes me feel feminine, that's the same thing. We don't get to decide for women what in their bodily autonomy, in their expression of their gender, is, quote-unquote, bad or contributing to uh, negative images of feminism or mm. uh, of women. Um, and so because I think that still blames women for patriarchy's moves. 
It still holds right. individual women to account for buying into the male gaze or whatever, rather than saying, why aren't we challenging the male gaze? Well, aren't uh, we? I mean, why are we punishing women for... I, I, think, I mean, like, as a, isn't that the point of the critique that that one should try to? I mean, complete. I completely concur. And in some respects, people like you who are who are pushing back against all of these traditions are at the vanguard yeah. of encouraging people to think in new ways about stuff like this. But shouldn't that be the goal that we encourage people to think outside of the the box and create a climate in which there's the greatest possible individual? flourishing i mean to, to take the false consciousness mm-hmm. argument seriously imagine that you know you you liberate an entire population from a the, from theocratic rule like under the taliban or something mm-hmm. and they continue to wear the full burqa and a person like you could say look let's not patronize them by saying that they're subjected to some kind of patriarchal ideology this is their free choice mm-hmm. we shouldn't force them to wear what they don't want to wear yes we shouldn't force them but it would also be nice to create a climate in which they felt self-empowered enough to know what they're missing. Are they missing things by wearing Well, they won't, they won't know until they, until they understand all of the options that are available to them and un- uh, until they no longer feel like they're living inside an intellectual box. I think that's imposing a lot of thought upon those people uh, that is is uncalled for <laughs> i think by like oh well this woman conti- chose to continue wearing the burqa wearing the this extreme example of modesty culture um when like maybe that's just what she's comfortable with for right now and if she wants to learn in the future we can you know have people within her community willing to talk to her about that or whatever uh, but she might also make that decision out of empowerment. Maybe she likes being anonymous when she goes out, um, that sort of thing. Like mm, I don't I mean, maybe, think... but how would she know that she wants to learn and, unless she's learned? Isn't it, it sounds like you're yeah. arguing against the whole project of educating girls in Afghanistan? Oh God, no, no. In like... the sense that they're not going to have their minds open to the possibility of how they can carry themselves and what they could be yeah. up to in this world. Unless they're they're told that actually they can live this way, but they could live a million other ways as well. Yeah, and in your vision of a fully liberated uh, government where people are given those choices and stuff, a woman who chooses to continue wearing the burqa would be doing that out of her choice. If we're yes. talking in yeah yeah in in these worlds and stuff, so I'm not going to judge that person like i i live in in an area where there is uh, a neighborhood that's jokingly called little mogadishu because we have so many muslim (laughs) somali uh refugees who come over and there are women who wear the full uh i don't think i've seen the full face covering uh burqa but i have seen the um oh what's it called the niqab or, or what where where the, it's just around the head and then yeah addressed? the abaya um, abaya the yeah face yeah, right. is open um right. and so yeah. but like everything else is just basically a big lump of fabric um yeah. and stuff and that's really common here um and it like it's not my job as a as a white person to question what that person from somalia is choosing to wear or 
uh, for what reason. Um, and so she lives in an area where she could take that off if she wanted. Um, and they know that. <laughs> so Yeah, of course. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I said, that she lives, uh, that person lives under a, a Western secular liberal uh, democracy where religious law is not imposed. If, mm-hmm. if that person lives in a community where it's likely that her husband is going to disown her and is going to informally deprive her of, uh, you know, financial benefits or, uh, you know, somehow otherwise punish her or prevent her from seeing her kids if there'll be enormous uh, pressure from her community, from her imam, from her grandparents to make sure that she keeps wearing that, then maybe there's a different conversation to be had about the integration of of such communities or, you know, edu- proper mm-hmm. education. But, um, yeah, in a liberal democracy, there's no- there's nothing to worry about. Um, the Let's get back to gender because that's, <laughs> that's yeah. more your area of ex- expertise and my yep. interest in this conversation. So these kinds of ways of presenting as male or as female, is there a... Is there any conflict between non-binary trans people and binary trans people here? Because it strikes me that your whole kind of MO is to call bullshit on the sort of socially arbitrary and culturally arbitrary nature of a lot of of, of gender. I mean, you don't fit in. You want to Mm -hmm. challenge people. You want to push them to question their preconceptions about gender. You want to screw around with gender stereotypes and not be not fit into any category, and yet the main goal of many binary trans people is to pass, is to inhabit the characteristics of mm-hmm. the gender that they feel they are, and is your kind of screwing around with gender running counter to that mission? Uh, I think you will find that there are some binary trans people who say yes. Um, they're, they're non-binary has had to sort of claw for its own space uh, within the trans movement, even though we have always existed right alongside uh, trans people. There's always been genderqueer, uh, genderfluid, non-binary people who sit in the sort of in-between spaces. Um, but there is, especially in the environment that we have today where trans people in a lot of areas are having to argue to justify our own existence. Uh, Non-binary people have been treated as though we are taking away from that project of general cis acceptance, um, which to me, I understand as a non-binary person, but also I understand that that is not something I have control over really whether or not cis people accept us because in my experience very often cisgender people are looking for a reason to say that they don't want trans people in x y and z um and so whether or not i exist in the conversation isn't like it's not my fault that cis people want to do a bad faith reading of that um and very much of that anger from within the community toward non-binary people, I feel is misdirected. Um, Because the entire thing we're trying to defeat is this cisgender patriarchy that says, whatever you are born with, that is your destiny. That is who you will become. And it means X, Y, and Z for whichever set of genitals you happen to have. 
And so the more that we liberate people from that biology as destiny argument, uh, the more space we will have both for binary trans people who want to go deep stealth and never like uh, be considered what they are without ever having to disclose trans status and for non-binary people who are like, you know, I might show up to this in a, in a, uh, weird, like both masculine and feminine outfit and confuse the crap out of you. And I think there's room for both of us under the, the trans umbrella. It's yeah. Why does it have to be under the trans umbrella? I actually argue about this in my book. The trans umbrella doesn't really make that much sense anymore. So I like to, uh, but it, it is the common terminology. So I use it with um, with people sometimes in order to introduce them to other new ideas. Um, mm. But like the trans umbrella has for a while included way too many categories that are just basically gender nonconformance or gender uh, creativity um and so so i take to referring to it as the gender expansive community which includes people who are uh binary trans who are non-binary who are mm. some other part of that uh community that's interesting but you do include binary trans people in that community yeah yep yeah, that's interesting. Because, I mean, when you think about, I'm just thinking about thinking aloud for the first time, I hadn't thought about this, but the etymology of like transgender, like a, a yeah. transcontinental flight is one that goes from one side of the continent to mm -hmm. the other side of the continent, right? It's a transcon. You're going from one mm -hmm. side to another. Uh, it makes sense that transgender is going from one gender to another gender. Mm -hmm. If you're genderqueer and you're saying there is no such thing, sorry, gender non-binary rather, and you're saying there is no such thing and these are false labels in the first place, you're not flying across the country. You know, you're right there in the Midwest uh, where you are trying to, trying to you know, yeah. inhabit that middle ground. Yeah, my uh, one of my good friends, Casey, describes their gender precisely as a transatlantic flight. You are neither here nor there. You are in between. You are always right. traveling, right. Uh, which is what lent itself to the title of the book in transit. Yes. So. Oh, I get the, yes, I get the pun now. <laughs> um, and do you feel that there's a fluctuating, you know, many people uh, in the, let's call it the gender expansive community, as you just, you just called it, will talk about there being a kind of a fluctuating relationship to gender in the same way that some people whose sexuality is, is complicated will occasionally, you know, be dating a guy and occasionally be dating a girl and will, mm -hmm. will find that coming in, in ebbs and flows throughout their lives. Is that your experience or is yours more fixed? Mine is a bit more fixed, but there are days when I feel more, uh, how do I put this, like gender full than others, where like there are some days where I'm like, I don't want to be perceived, I don't want to experience gender at all, and other days where I'm like, I am this like magical fusion of all these different things, and I am masculine and I am feminine at all these different points. And I know that for Every non-binary person that I've ever talked to, it's very similar, where they will, um, like, it's fixed in that it is non-binary in this label of I'm not this or that, um, but I'm something else entirely. But that something else entirely is a big, big category of different things of how they imagine themselves and what they choose to present themselves as. And it's sort of this 
playfulness uh, with the concept of gender uh, that refuses to be pinned down. Mm, got it. A moment ago, Diana, you you characterized the contemporary cisgender ideology, the patriarchal one, as being like you, you know very deterministic uh, that mm. men are this way and women are that way, and you know depending on what you're born with between your legs, that's going to ter- determine what your interests are and what your fate will be. That it's interesting that you characterize it that way, and unsurprising given the fact that you grew up in an evangelical household. Um, I grew up in a very progressive secular. Uh, artsy fartsy sort of inner city uh, latte sipping uh, you know chardonnay <laughs> um, soy boy soy yeah. boy yeah low testosterone whatever else the trumpers want to call me uh, that kind of you know a very brooklyn sort of you know uh, environment in in australia and i would characterize the contemporary cisgender ideology as being one that says that sex actually is completely irrelevant and biologically irrelevant as well. This is not not necessarily any more conducive to trans uh, people, but mm-hmm. but that but a um, an ideology that any expression, any argument that involves any nod to there being a biological difference, a behavioural biological difference between males and females, is prima facie suspect and is probably mm-hmm. a tool of the patriarchy. And that if feminism has taught us anything, it's that everyone can do anything with equal aptitude and also equal interest. Um, I'm interested in whether or not you see, and I see that as also maybe even more threatening to the trans movement in the sense that it says there there are there is really no male or female at all. So what are you talking about, <laughs> trans yeah. people? Uh, you know, saying that you're in the wrong body. Uh, you know, yes, some of us have vaginas, and yes, some of us have penises, and yes, some of us have boobs. But inside, there is no such thing as a a female person or a male person in some kind of deep spiritual sense. Everything is a cultural construct. That was sort of the ideology that I was brought up with. Yeah, and I think that is misunderstanding how gender functions within society. Uh, Like I said at the beginning of this, gender functions as a language. Uh, Whether or not we think it is a useful language, whether or not we like it, it does exist as a form in which we communicate with each other, in which we express different things, in which we have these different ideas. Like when we say feminine and masculine, those are cultural constructs, but they do—they are words that have meaning for people. Um, and so, therefore, we d- it does exist as a thing that, that we choose to communicate within. And yeah, there is no difference between men and women, not really. Um, there's not really and do you, any... Do you believe that? Because, I'm, I mean, I was just articulating the, the sort of what I regard as the prevailing cisgender yeah. point of view. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure uh, whether or not gender is only, a, or rather sex difference is only a cultural construct in the sense that if, you know, if you buy a, a, a puppy and you wanted a female dog and you get it home and you realise it's a male dog, you're not going to shrug and go, oh, well, gender's just a construct anyway and there's no difference between biological sex. I'll just keep the male dog. It'll behave exactly the same as the female dog. There, we are mammals. We have evolved over millions of years. There probably are differences of interest. If you give, gather a thousand males together in a room and say that you can either take together and take apart and put back together a machine and have you know figure out where the widgets go mm-hmm. you know you put them alone in a room uh, and or you can spend the rest of the day mediating a, a family conflict 
uh, it is the case that men will tend to go for the former and women will tend to go for the latter in larger numbers. Does that mean that every single woman wants that? No. Does it mean that every single man wants that? No. Of course, it's all a bell curve, but there are the bell curves don't perfectly seem to overlap in the sexes. And it's an open question whether or not all of that is culturally constructed or whether there are some genetic differences between the sexes. But is that a salient point either way for your point of view? Uh, I don't think there is a way to make an argument from reproduction that does not also disallow for homosexuality. Uh, if you are insisting, you know, women have vaginas, men have penises, like that sort of thing, uh, which is very often where the argument goes from there, uh, then we end up with, well, then reproduction is the purpose of those Things, so we end up reinscribing heterosexuality within that as part of the roles, uh, because otherwise, why do those things exist? Why does that dimorphism exist? Um, but going back to like whether or not there are differences, I don't think personally there are differences, and to me, I don't see like a very helpful distinction between sex and gender. Um, of it, to me, it's it's all a language game that we're playing. Um, and I think that most of the ways that we talk about gender, that we inscribe gender as uh, a system, are social constructs in that in the way that we um, look at what the identity categories are as the political categories, as social categories, and um, as personal categories. We don't. How do I put this? It's, it's, to me, a distinction without a difference. Um, there's not... There's not a way that you can significantly uh, demarcate between men and women that would actually have any meaning down to the individual level, which is ultimately what uh, this exists for, is the system of, ge of gender where, like, where... Um, like when you say I am a woman, you are saying that you belong to a specific political, social, um, and often economic category within this system of gender. So I guess what I'm getting back getting at is that yeah, they're all social constructs. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think Sorry, I feel it took like me a while to get around to there. But, I, I get it. Um, I get it. I feel yeah. like you're loading the dice a little bit by predefining the social construct as things like when I say I'm a woman, I'm I'm talking about my politics and e economic theory and all of that sort of stuff because obviously no. that stuff would not be based on biological sex that stuff would be culturally invented but if it's all cultural that's, that's not precisely what i said sorry um, go for it when you are saying i am a woman you are making a declarative statement that you are part of a category within a system uh you are not making a specific statement about your politics but like women exist as a social and political category for how we organize society and so by saying you are a woman, you are saying you are part of this class. So, Yes, when you, you might be saying that if you're talking about your gender, but if you're, if you're with a physician, then you might not be saying that. You might just be, if you're getting screened for cervical cancer, then you might just be using a shorthand that I know trans people don't like, but a shorthand that has traditionally been used for people who were assigned female at birth. Well, yeah, as, as a non-binary person who has a vagina and a cervix, I do not like that being called women's care or a well woman appointment because I'm not a woman and that makes assumptions about what 
equipment I might have when we tie it into biology so closely. Um, I get there. that. So I for me personally, that. like my doctor does not call it well woman stuff with me. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But how and does, if that if works it's... for for you as as a cis man to have it be like, you know, your whatever well man appointment or whatever. Um, it doesn't sound like quite right, fine. does it? <laughs> no, I mean, I can understand, I can imagine yeah. how that would feel alienating if it didn't, you know, if it didn't mesh with your own identity. But mm-hmm. uh, if it's all cultural though, then how does the male, how has the male dog absorbed the cultural norms that it's supposed to abide by when it needs to be desexed because it's going crazy when it goes through puberty? We're not dogs. Like that, that, that analogy doesn't fit for me, like at all, because we're not dogs. We're but not wait, cats. Are you religiously, we are sentient beings who are, are you capable so religious of language. That you, oh, right. Okay. But you're not denying that you, you, you do believe in evolution and that like we're mammals who are, who share a lot of characteristics with other mammals. Yeah. But I don't believe in evolutionary psychology as a thing where like we can apply that one-to-one to humans. Right. Yes, there like, is a lot of nonsense in evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider the lobster uh, with Jordan, yeah. you know, Jordan Peterson's lobster analogy. We keeps getting trotted out as, a, as an example of bad evolutionary yes. psychology by comparing us to crustaceans. Um, but does the fact that there's bad evolutionary psychology mean that we have no instincts and propensities and predispositions on the basis of our physicality when we share what 98 plus percent of our dna with other primates who do exhibit those characteristics and we also exhibit those characteristics but we're the only mammal for whom it's all it's all culturally constructed i think what you're getting at is like how does consciousness form um which is a question i'm not qualified to answer um I'm not sure it's how and, does consciousness form, but does is consciousness the only game in town? Is like intellectual yeah. and lang- and linguistic consciousness the only thing that's driving human beings, I, or are there more primal forces at play? I think that insofar as it is the thing that defines us and makes us different from humans who are acting as instinct, we are so separated from those times when we as mammals acted on instinct. Um, that it is not meaningful to me to discuss that as a thing. Um, it doesn't, we, <laughs> we construct houses, we live in um, apartment buildings and in cities and in these things that will go against all instincts that we would have had as the very, very early set of humans when they first evolved. Mm. Um, and so no, I take our, your point. I, t- I also yeah. have to make this point when people say, oh, homosexuality is unnatural, to which mm-hmm. I say, well, firstly, it's not unnatural because animals do it. But even if they didn't, yeah. like going to the moon is unnatural. Inventing yeah. vaccines is unnatural. There are lots of things that humans do that are unnatural. I take that point. But, uh, I mean, how, how can you explain the extraordinary violence of males compared to females, the the in- extraordinary, extraordinarily higher rates of sexual violence in particular and rape and intermale violence? Is that all a cultural construct? I think it is. I think that's a result of, one, both how we categorize violence, how we look at things um, as violence and what we categorize as violence is often very much built to exclude the female from those things. Um, in the UK, 
uh, for example, uh, and a lot of people will point to this, rape is defined as a penis violating a vagina. And that construct in law means that women who are convicted of sexual assaults and convicted of things that we would properly call rape do not get categorized as that. And I'm saying, well, you cis said women, women you mean not. cis women. Yes, exactly. Yes, I was yes. going to call you up on um, that. People with penises. Yes. I mean, people yes. without penises. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so the ways in which we construct those categories is very important to how we talk about it. And we also ha- live in a patriarchal system where men are, one, both permitted to do violence a lot more. It is seen as a form of proper expression of emotion for men to be violent and seen as a transgression of femininity for women to be violent. Um, That's why we end up with categories of like documentaries that are killer women and stuff because it is considered unusual for women to be violent. Even though on, I think if we stripped out and controlled for those nuances in the law and things like that, we would find that it's fairly equal um, if we stripped out the uh, categories that deem violence as the only acceptable thing for men to uh, do to express their emotion. I I can hear that women are very violent. (laughs) Oddly, I can hear men's rights activists and the strident (laughs) anti-feminists applauding and going, the transgender non-binary feminist Diana Anderson (laughs) says that women are just as violent as men. It's just a, it's an accounting error, guys. Well, I think, I think ultimately it is because of how we live in society and how we construct violence in society. Uh, There are cases where like, we we minimize female violence from cis women uh so readily uh like if you think about how if you see two women are fighting it gets minimized as a cat fight you know it is something that is non-consequential it is something that is um not really seen as this scary violent thing um and that it's yeah, important to note of yeah, how we categorize yeah. it. So, so okay. I would not, I would not agree with the statement that men are just naturally more violent. I think we have a culture which encourages violence in men as the only proper expression of masculinity. Yeah, I see. I see. Well, the jury's out uh, ultimately on nature versus nurture, is it? And we'll probably continue to be out for a millennia to come. And we'll keep having these arguments round and round and round in circles. Um, are all young people who question their gender trans? No, but I don't, but I think, uh, there are trans kids. There are people who know from the time when they are four or five that they are trans, uh, and therefore we need to, uh, respect that identity as, as valid. I've been contacted by some parents in the course of my reporting on, Mm -hmm. On all of this, who are, I mean, I've been contacted by many parents who are extremely supportive of the way that um, transgender issues are are dealt with in Australia and feel incredibly relieved that their child was able to access gender affirming care mm-hmm. at a very early age and was able to transition successfully and that's that's a you know a, a thing that everyone should applaud. On the other hand, i do get I do get contacted by parents who feel that their children were 
perhaps caught up in a in a system that was too eager to affirm their care and they're worried that the media really doesn't report on this with the exception of sort of right-wing ratbag, you know, you can turn on Fox News any day of the week and you can hear them, uh, you know, yeah. spewing transphobic nonsense. Um, but in what I regard as being the upstanding journalistic circles, there's definitely a fear of reporting on it, a fear of touching the subject. Um, every time anyone I know has, including myself, when I've just spoken to, you know, like when the Tavistock Clinic closed in the UK, we spoke with mm-hmm. the Australian uh, Psychiatric Association on my show, and they had some concerns about, they, they were, their basic argument was that you know, if a 12-year-old girl uh, is comes to a psychiatrist and says that she thinks she's transgender, uh, should the psychiatrist be able to inquire about any other underlying issues? Should they be able to ask about anxiety or depression, about her family life, about how she's doing with her peers? Or is it a requirement that the moment they hear the word transgender, they activate an emergency, like a, an, uh, an affirming care plan without interrogating anything further? And there's a sense among these parents that the latter is what happens and that it's impossible for journalists to ask whether that happens or to talk about it. And so I did one segment on this, extremely respectful of transgender people repeating over and over uh, that uh, they have every right to be treated uh, equally and to access all of the healthcare that they need. And nonetheless, we got inevitable complaints that then suck up a half day of my time responding to those complaints, you know, note by note and it does strike me that the the point of those complaints is not actually to point out any error the point of those complaints is to raise the cost of even talking about this issue to such a high watermark that journalists are scared of talking about it um what do you make of that long anecdote like should there be room for reporting on people who don't feel that transitioning was the right path i think there needs to be much more responsibility on the journalist's part to report those stories within context and with the knowledge of how those stories are used uh, to punish trans kids. Um, In the United States, we have had a slew over the past five years of journalists delving into this area and the stories are always very much the same. Like this is happening, your kid says they're trans, what do you do with them? And then telling this narrative, like what you said, of, well, they're not allowed to question. They're not allowed to do all this stuff where they just go in and get put on hormones right away. And it turns into this scaremongering thing. And that very often includes stories from people who have detransitioned and feel like they were misled, um, who are engaged in activist circles that are trying to stop trans kids from transitioning, uh, which does not get disclosed in the articles. And then when that comes out and trans people rightfully critique it for not disclosing those associations, for uh, leaning hard into the scaremongering of it by presenting a false narrative of what happens within the, um, within the appointments, within the, uh, medical uh, system, the journalist takes this position of, well, I was just trying to report on this. I was just trying to tell the truth. And like you said, this is raising the cost of doing these journalistic things. And I think it would be good for journalists to consider that cost. Because here in the United States, 
those articles get cited by legislators who are trying to ban trans health care for anybody. Uh, there are several states that have laws on the books now that ban trans health care for anybody under 18 uh, that are being challenged in laws and thankfully challenged in the courts. And thankfully, the courts are saying, no, this is a bad law. You can't do that. But those stories that these reporters feel the need to report end up getting cited in those laws by people who are acting against transgender people. So like, no matter how much respect was in the original story, you have to consider how it will be used and what the larger context of where trans identity is within the media landscape. Uh, because I never hear in those stories of how trans kids are happy. <laughs> you almost never, ever hear that. You hear the worry over oh, I do. transition no, care. I, no, I do hear that. I mean, again, let's make sure that we're criticizing the strongest opponent's yeah. arguments, not the weakest ones, right? So I'm sure there's a ton of what you're talking about, which is that someone who is basically transphobic and who is kind of an activist in anti-trans circles writes some piece about oh my goodness the children are all transitioning and you know they they were merely gender curious and now they're on hormones and all of a sudden you know little no, I'm talking little about Susie's like on hormones or something but yeah. if you're talking about Emily Bazelon at the New York Times magazine who wrote a big piece about this and got absolutely annihilated on social yeah, media yeah and, and I think her piece was unfair <laughs> i mean she was took real pains in that piece to to mm -hmm. articulate the position i think that you're in favor of which is that there are a great many trans people for whom this this is beneficial, but there are a few who aren't, and there is this controversy inside medical circles themselves, not just among the chattering classes, about how much mm -hmm. to about how to deal with five year olds and ten year olds and fifteen year olds who may be on the in the grey areas here, who may not be people who since the age of two have insisted that they were transgender, but who are in some kind of a social or cultural cohort where a, a great many people are transitioning at the same time. And so to what extent can psychiatrists and psychologists interrogate that? And when you say that, you know, these, these look, I'm a journalist, not an activist. So anytime that mm -hmm. someone tells me that we shouldn't be reporting on a thing that's happening and a legitimate question of medicine and medical policy because it might subsequently get misused by some asshole Republican lawmaker who wants to strip trans people of their rights, my answer to that would be, let's do everything we can to ensure that asshole lawmakers can't stri strip trans people of their rights. But I don't think we're ultimately going to succeed in fighting that battle if we're perceived by centrists and by people, you know, all over in the heartland as being disingenuous and unwilling to cop to actual disagreements that are taking place in our in our community and i mean you say that these articles might act against the interests of transgender people but we also have to consider the interests of uh the people who you just before admitted exist who are young people who are questioning their gender who are not trans i think mm, how do i put this kindly I do not think that the journalists choosing to report on this have the have done necessarily the work to see that it is happening. Their story to see what after is happening? story that, 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 that you mean that people are being rushed into it. Yes, story I mean, after story after story doesn't actually 
have any evidence or any stories of people who are rushed through uh, medical transition at a young age. The detransitioners that they cite all transition of over 18. Uh, a bunch of the one, and they're very often the same ones repeated over and over again. The same people, the same stories. Uh, somebody who transitioned at 13, who, who transitioned at 23, um, talking about how it's bad for 13-year-olds to transition. Doesn't make much sense to me. That story does not belong within a story about 13-year-olds. And so those associations that are so frequent in the stories, including in the Baslin piece, including in the one that just came out in the New York Times last week about top surgery, make it so it sounds like it's a much bigger problem than it is. Detransition happens in less than 1% of cases. Uh, transition surgeries have a regret rate that is less than 1%. Um, and that is not reported on. <laughs> that is not something... I don't think this idea that kids are being rushed through is actually happening. If we look at the statistics, if we look at who is transitioning and um, who is being given access to medications, it's people who have had a stable trans identity for years. It is people who have been on waiting lists for multiple years you don't walk in as a 14-year-old into a Planned Parenthood and get meds. That mm. just does not happen. I, you hear people telling of that happening, but I have yet to have a name and a face put to it. I have on yet the, to have somebody come up and say, I went to Planned Parenthood at 13 and got put on tea. That's just not happening. And so by having that be the focus of the transgender debate, that is driving the discourse around it. And I think journalists have a responsibility to say, okay, this piece, how is this different than the any number of pieces about this same thing? I'm even using the same subjects <laughs> as that other person who wrote well, the same I, I'm piece not, three I'm years not ago. Sure that, I'm not sure that's fair, Diana. I'm just, just in order to fact check it, I'm just Googling the Emily Bazelon piece. And it, it does say for this article, Emily Bazelon spoke with more than two dozen young people about their experiences. So they may not all be named, and I'm not going to go through mm -hmm. the entire article, but they're certainly different from uh, the Atlantic yeah, she, piece. It's been a while since I've read the Bazelon piece, but she quotes Grace Linsky-Smith, correct? I don't know. I mean, it's a long, it's a long piece, but I, I mean, you know, this went through all of the New York Times fact checking and, you know, she had many, yes. many people who she was able to speak to who were young people who spoke to her yes, about she it. Speaks but I'm to, yep. She spoke and the ones whose stories she chose to tell were the same people who appeared in Jesse Singles piece, who appeared in the recent piece about top surgery, who appeared on the 60 minutes thing about detransitioners. It's the same people over and over again. <laughs> So if the that problem to me is, is lazy that, journalism. Well, if that I'll fact check that, but if that's true, then that is that is lazy, and it would certainly points to mm -hmm. your argument that this is being blown out of proportion. Yeah. I, I suspect that uh, statistically, one reason, it is. Well, I mean, I suspect that one reason why it is being blown out of proportion is because there's a sense among some of these journalists that that, that this is an area of bad faith where people just aren't willing to um, to acknowledge the possibility that they're wrong. Where you know that 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 there is that the system needs tweaking, 
or that there could ever be a reason for a young person flagging this with their parents or with a, a school or a health professional that is not uh, that they actually do want to transition and that is a you know an artifact. It almost comes back to what we were saying about the hijab and the burqa and, and mm-hmm. bikinis and things like that, doesn't it? Like when is something false consciousness and when is something that one needs to take at face value and at what age is a person capable of making a self-diagnosis that has to be taken to the bank the moment they announce it? And anyone who has it's any concerns not... about about that is finds their lives a, a steaming pile of of rubble and ruin from from uh, yeah the the gender critical. Now activists. who's exaggerating? Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> on social media, it's, shall I say? Yeah, I. <sighs> Let me put it this way. So you, much you say of the that way the... that you framed that of a kid, um, it denies these trans kids the closet. It denies them any interiority to their own mind. Uh, the moment that a kid comes out is the moment the kid is revealing information about themselves. It is, which you and I both know as queer people, that is you 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 know long before you come out um very often mm. Mm. and so many parents take that as oh they decided this morning like right. they don't yes. take that yes, in good faith um yeah. and that to me is a great problem that we have in this entire discussion is that we deny these children the ability to know themselves deny that they could possibly know themselves and deny them any sort of interiority that would mean that they are closeted right if you had a parent who you knew was not going to be happy if you announced that you were trans you knew would have um problems with that you would hold off until you couldn't deny it anymore um I mean, that's true if you're a 16-year-old in an evangelical household, but it may not be true if you're an eight-year-old who thinks that, uh, you know, uh, what we used to call cross-dressing is a fun thing to do with their friends and if they Mm -hmm. feel awkward in their skin in the sex that they were assigned and feel like they'd be Yeah, and nobody is medically transitioning eight-year-olds. No, maybe, but is the is the conversation only about medically transitioning? Isn't it also about culturally transitioning and basically what parents should make of such a claim? Yeah, if if your kid, I lean back on the uh, the standards of care from WPATH, especially the ones that they just released, which are actually pretty good. Uh, they uh, really age delimited a lot of things they, because people develop differently. Um, and if I had, say, my niece who is six, uh, came up to me and said, "I think I'm non-binary," I would say, "Okay." How do you want that to look? Uh, you know, she, uh, uh, her mom and dad and I would have a conversation about that because, you know, I'm the non-binary uh, person in the family. We would have a conversation about what that should look like for her. Um, and that might include social transition. And if she is consistent about that identity for a number of months to years, then down the road, medical transition might come into play. But if she, say, in three months goes, eh, I don't think this is working for me. I'm going to be a girl again. Fine. What have we lost? Yeah, I see. I see. So to me, you lose so much more 
by saying, no, you're not, and denying that child any chance to explore than you do by, oh, okay, social transition, it didn't work out, whatever. Yeah. And uh, Diana, when you say that the the these journalists who write stories about detransitioners or desisters, uh, mm-hmm. that you know they're really barking up the wrong tree because there isn't really a story there because this sort of thing isn't happening. It's not true that thirteen year olds are going in and being prescribed testosterone, and they're all they, cherry picking yeah. the same small number of cases. Does that I mean? Don't think... Sorry, I, go. I want go to ahead. be clear in that detransition yeah. does happen. And it happens for all sorts of valid reasons, including realizing that you're not trans. Uh, there are a lot of people who detransition because they realize it's not going to function well in their particular social environment. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner being one of the most famous detransitioners, she actually tried to transition in the 80s um, and was on hormones for like six months um, and realized it was not going to, it was not the right time for her to come out and then eventually did actually transition, uh, as we all know. Um, and so like, there are different reasons that people detransition. So I'm not denying that detransitioning happens, but the idea that it is something where somebody didn't question enough or they didn't, they were rushed through these environments. I don't, I don't think that is happening. Right. If the, if the criticism is that that the that the the sort of medical system is not rushing people through, does that mean that if it did rush people through, or if it did start rushing people through, then writing such articles would be responsible? Because your earlier point was that such articles can get misused as pretexts for people who are transphobic to pass laws that strip trans people of their rights. That would yeah, still be the case. We, that would still yeah. be the case if those articles were true. Yeah, if we if we had statistic proof that there was suddenly a rush of people going through the system way too quickly, like they get handed their their testosterone prescription at the first appointment or whatever, and they are, you know, they've only been identifying as whatever for, you know, three days uh publicly, um, or whatever. Like, I would think there would be a responsibility to do that, but that's not what's happening. And that, unfortunately, is the primary narrative that we have around trans kids. Got it. But I'm just trying to clarify. If it's trans kids, it would would be responsible to report on that, even if it gave ammunition to transphobes. Yeah, because that would be a thing that's actually happening and therefore needs regulation in some way, maybe some new standards of care. Uh, so now it's written, just a factual question about whether or not the things that Emily Bazelon and Jesse Single say are happening are actually happening. I don't think they are. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that makes it easy to. <laughs> it certainly makes it. Uh, it certainly makes yeah. the whole debate a lot easier to resolve because we I've just have Jesse to... on the, out on that before. Um, and so yeah, I'm we just happy have to, to do it again. I don't. We think... just have. <laughs> yeah. We just have to establish whether or not what they're saying is true, or uh, in order to know whether or not it's worth writing. Because your earlier criticism of them yeah. was that we should we should dismiss such articles or you know, punish the writers of such articles because they have a bad impact on the transgender community. They don't act in well, the yeah. interest of transgender and people. But that's a different claim than saying because that the they are now that now that we're just yeah. questioning the veracity of the, the articles, it's easier to to adjudicate. Yeah. Right. And because there is such a big question of whether or not this is even actually happening, and I would contend that there's not, um that that it's not happening writing the article to me, especially in the ways that many of them have been written, uh, 
does become irresponsible at that point. Um, Diana, let's let's talk about the future because I'm inter- I, yeah. I'm mindful of your time, but I'm also interested in where you see gender going from from here. I've um I, I've long argued for a sort of sense of I guess sexual and romantic flourishing and and non mm-hmm. non specific uh, like I guess a non a non binary a non binary thinking in sexuality because. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that the time has come in big progressive pro-gay circles for us to worry less about our labels and our identities and worry more yeah. about flourishing as individual human beings who can get their jollies with whomever they wish without having to jump in and out of uh, you know identity boxes or open up whole mm-hmm. Pandora's boxes of, of identity. Do you feel the same way about gender? I mean, like I sort of think that when my children who are currently five years old um, are grown up, it would be great if they could date a boy or date a girl or date a mm-hmm. non-binary person and that wouldn't raise eyebrows necessarily that that wouldn't be like oh okay that means you're now something called a bisexual do you think the same yeah. thing will happen with gender i think so i think like we will always have those sort of like categories and labels existing insofar as the state continues to think it has a compelling interest in identifying and labeling people um which is a completely other argument um, that if you want to read more on Jules Gills, Peterson is the person for that. Um, But I think ultimately it's going to be like, however you define your gender. I, uh, I am of the opinion that there's no real tangible, like not tangible, real meaningfulness to the idea of, of cisgender as a an individual identity rather it is a way of identifying within a system of gender that currently exists um and in the future whatever transness whatever non-binariness whatever cisgenderness looks like in a world without patriarchy would be a lot more like oh hey what pronouns do you use like what labels do you personally use to identify your gender and make it intelligible for other people um i Mm. i personally believe there's as many genders as there are people (laughs) so that's interesting yeah diana thank you for being such a good sport thanks for for your time for rolling with all of my uh my intrusive (laughs) questions (laughs) it's uh it's fascinating to talk to you it's a it's a really really interesting um a really interesting life to delve into and a really interesting mind so i appreciate it well thank you thank you for having me on the book is called in transit being non-binary in a world of dichotomies and people can find you i guess people can find you on twitter if they want to uh, want to want to follow yes. your diatribes against jesse single and other and other delights <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you diana thank you Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.